So last time I stood here in the pulpit, I asked you all to consider the value of asking questions. You might recall we were discussing um, a story in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus asked the disciples, what is on your minds? What are you guys talking about, Jesus asked them. And I invited you to share what was on your minds and to jot them down, put them in the offertory basket. I said, what are your big, beautiful questions? Do you remember that? And I want you to know that those did not get lost on my desk. I didn't forget about them these past few weeks. In fact, they came to light in what I consider to be God's perfect timing this past week. I sat at my desk reflecting on this scripture passage from Job. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Job, uh, Ian just gave you a little snippet. It's an ancient book in the Old Testament. It tells the story of a wealthy man named Job who seemingly had the perfect life. Job loves God. He's a man of integrity. He has a beautiful family who are close-knit, who love each other. He prays for them and for the people in his life daily. He is committed to praying for the people around him. He owns a lot of land. As I said, he's a wealthy man, so he had a lot of animals. He had sheep and camels and oxen, and even the Bible tells us a few hundred she-asses. I love the Bible. Like, who uses that word? Nobody calls them she-asses, except in the Bible. Job is, by all accounts, hashtag blessed. Until one day, when that wily one, Satan, decides to test him. And it all comes crashing down. Job's children are killed in a freak accident. His animals are all slaughtered by rival tribes. Lightning actually strikes and kills all of his sheep and his shepherds. And to add insult to injury, Job is, is covered in ugly, painful sores. It's a pounding, punishing pain, gut-wrenching, that Job endures. It's actually astounding how much Job loses. And the gist of the story is that then Job's three friends come and try to console him. And at first they do what good friends do. They know that they can't take away this despair, so they just sit with him. The Bible says they actually sit down on the ground silently for one week. That's friendship right there. And then one by one, Job's friends begin to speak. They offer advice, platitudes, encouragement, condemnations, a little more advice, some justifications, some rationale, a few lectures. And Job dismisses all of it. Eventually, he gets mad. He says, why is this happening to me? A blameless man. Job followed all the rules. Tragedies aren't supposed to befall the faithful. He doesn't deserve this, he winds up telling his friends. And furthermore, Job says, why doesn't God just show his face 
and let me confront him. Man up, God. Show your face and let's clear the air right here and now, Job says. He pleads with God to come so they can have, have it out. And his friends get somewhat horrified at this. They tell Job, you cannot shake your fist at God like that. You're being irreverent. You're not being God-fearing. Maybe they think you did do something to deserve all this torment. And you can almost see right there in the pages of the Old Testament, his friends begin to look at Job in the harsh new light of suspicion. And in the midst of all of this back and forth and back and forth, 36 chapters of it, out of the maelstrom, out of the whirlwind, we're told, God speaks. And it's one of the most powerful passages in the Bible as God reveals the incalculable, unknowable force behind all of creation. It's really gripping, and it kind of makes me want to just cheer at the sheer power of God. So as I sat there at my desk with the story of Job in front of me and the power of God speaking to me, I remembered your big, beautiful questions. And here's what some of you said. Why do people suffer? That was appropriate. Why do people have cancer and dementia and other diseases? What's ahead for me after big life changes? Why do I seem to struggle? Or is it even really struggling? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there so much cancer in the world? How do I understand God's timing? These are some of the things that were on your mind. You can see why they made me think of Job. They're some of the things that were on Job's mind. And there were so many more, and we could add to that list so much more of what's on our minds today. And over the centuries, these questions have have plagued people. Why is there leprosy? People probably wondered at one time. Why the bubonic plague, the black plague? Why do women die in childbirth? Questions that over the centuries have seemed unanswerable, maybe even still are unanswerable. To that list, we add so many things of the times where we rail against God in anger and frustration and pain at a world seemingly run amok. A child dies, and we grieve and we cry out to God, why? A plane crashes, killing everyone on board, and we say, why? A beloved spouse gets diagnosed with a terminal disease, and we cry out, why? A nation inflicts genocide on its people. A journalist is killed brutally in an embassy. A relationship is torn apart. A family experiences the heartache of mental illness. A child wanders, estranged from a family who desperately loves him. A job is lost. 
to all of these experiences and frankly, to all of our human sufferings, both large and small, we cry out to God seeking answers that will satisfy our souls. And often the response is a deafening silence. We're left with more questions than answers. But here's what I want all of us to be reminded of today, that after the grieving period has been honored, after all the friends have come and offered their opinions, after the tears have been shed and after the screaming matches with God and faithful people find themselves in a full-on faith crisis, after all of that, God comes in a whirlwind. The Bible uses that metaphor so frequently. God comes in a storm. God comes in a wind. God comes in a whirlwind. But today I like to read this almost as though God is coming into the whirlwind that is the chaos of our lives. And I want you to notice that in this reading with Job, God doesn't try to answer Job's questions. Nor does he validate the friend's assertions that it must have been something Job did or didn't do. God comes in with God's own agenda. And at first, God says, who is this that questions my wisdom with ignorant words? It's quite an accusation. And literally, the Hebrew language here means, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to question the ways of God? Why do you act and talk as though you have any idea about me and my work in the world? And then God says, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you. And you know the phrase, gird up your loins. Well, this is where that comes from. In many Bible translations, God says to Job, gird up your loins like a man. In other words, be ready. You wanted to talk? Let's talk. Bring it on. I think this is Job's first clue that this conversation with God that he has pleaded for is not going to go the way he thinks. And God goes on for four chapters, peppering Job with questions, totally unanswerable questions. You can go back and read them all later. It's really quite gripping. This entire book of Job, but the last four chapters of Job in particular, very powerful stuff. God says, I'm in charge here. I can see the whole picture. Reality is so much bigger than you think. What is your human suffering compared to the vastness of this world? And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you, God asks, when, when I did that, when I laid the foundations of the world? Where is the path and the source of light? Where does that come from, God asks him. Where is the home of the east wind, he says. Does the rain have a father? Who's the mother of ice, God says. Can you direct the movement of the stars, Job? 
course, these are unanswerable questions. God goes on and on with these. We teach our kids in Sunday school, and we learn growing up, and we talk about it a lot, that God is a smiling God. God is a loving, relational God. But this God is kind of scary. God shows up so powerful, so all-knowing. The magnificence and the strength of God in this passage is almost to be inaccessible to us as humans. This passage shows God in a different light, not what we're used to maybe, not what we expect. But then again, it's a little bit possible that our expectations of God are understandably small and understandably limited. We want answers to our suffering and to the suffering of the world. We want answers to what hurts and what plagues and what divides us on earth. And if not easy answers, then we at least want to know in that most American way of ours how to fix it. We live in a society, after all, that says everything happens for a reason. So just show us the reason, please, God, show us the reason and we'll fix it. We'll heal it. Like Job, we cry out to God with our suffering, and often God's answer to us is completely different than what we expect. We say, heal this suffering, and God says, don't try to understand my ways. God says, forget all you think you know about me and the way you think about the world, the way you think about world events and history, the way you think about human suffering and human accomplishment. Forget all that because I am beyond anything that you could possibly understand or know. The great Carl Sagan, the astronomer and philosopher, scientist, he referred to Earth as a dot. You remember this? He said, look again at that dot. That's Earth. That's home. That's us. He said, on it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. Sagan goes on to say, the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, every hopeful child, inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on that dot, on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Our human lives are fabulous, beautiful beyond words, a gift. But in the end, the meaning of life the meaning of suffering, the meaning of joy, these are all beyond our capacity of understanding. We are a speck on the moat of dust that is earth. 
that perspective, that sort of satellite view of the world, if you will, takes the pressure off a little bit. Maybe everything does happen for a reason, but it's not our reasons. Maybe everything does happen for a reason, but it's God's reason, and that is beyond our capacity. I'm still going to ask the questions. I'm still going to take action in the world. But it's a relief to know that I don't have to have the answers. In fact, I think, if I really think about it, a little sneaking suspicion that God is up to something. And I think if we open our minds a little bit, and by a little bit, I mean crack them wide open. (laughs) Crack them wide open so that our assumptions of this world, all of our experience, all of our perspective and education and things we thought we were so certain of, I think if we can just flip all that on its ear, we will discover that wrapped in our dust-speck-sized lives is a cosmic-sized plan. After four chapters of questions from God, Job is utterly silent. And then he says quietly and no doubt in awe, You asked, who is this? that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, Job says. And I was talking about things that I knew nothing about. And then Job says to God, I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I think the entirety of today's passage can be summed up in two simple but excruciatingly hard words. Trust me. And I ask you to join me in prayer with that in mind.